You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 28, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Well, this is the time of year, at least in, in my world, where my kids and all of them now, well, except my son this year, is playing soccer. And going out to see them play, it, it makes me pretty nostalgic. I'll walk out onto a field and all kinds of thoughts and emotions and, and memories come flooding back for a little over 20 years of my life spent out on fields like that. And this week, I actually had one particular memory I, I enjoyed and, and I thought about it as I was getting ready for our time this morning. I, it was a very clear, vivid moment in my life. And I was my son's age. I had just transferred to a new high school. Uh, I was in suburban Atlanta in Cobb County, and I transferred to a new high school. It was enormous, a couple thousand kids in the school. And I transferred mid-year, and so I transferred right in for the spring soccer season. And about four games in, we were playing one of our largest rivals. And this other team was in southern Cobb County. And Last year, the year before, they had been the county champions, finished third in the state, and they had the third leading goal scorer in the state of Georgia behind two guys who would go on to represent our country in the World Cup. So he was a pretty good player. And my job that night was to make sure that he was an afterthought. That was my job. Um, All week, our coach, every single week, he would prepare scouting reports on teams that we played. This was a very big deal. He had people watching games all around the county. And so we had paper reports in our locker every Monday for the first practice of the week that would dictate how we would practice and prepare for the team we played on Friday night. So all week long, I had known my job was to make sure Keith was an afterthought that night. Our coach brought in guys from the football team. Keith was 6'3". I am not. He brought in guys from the football team who had height, who had speed, so that all week long in certain drills and practices, I had to deal with this to get ready for this. And so that night came, that Friday night came, I was new to the, really the energy of this particular game, these two schools, and, and I was clear, though, on what I was supposed to do. And so every single Friday night before the game would start, we would all get dressed, ready to go, and all that nervous energy is going, and we're bouncing and moving, and our coach would bring us into the field house, and we'd have one last meeting before we go out on the field, and He gave us one last reminder of our responsibilities and what we were called to do, and he sent us out, and on the way out the door, I'll never forget it, going out the door, he's standing at the door, we're all filing out, he grabs my arm, and I mean, he grabs my my arm, and he said, come here, Robbie Green. He was from New Jersey, he's one of only three people in my life I've ever allowed to call me Robbie. Come here, Robbie Green, and he pulls me aside, he said, do you understand your job tonight? Yes, sir. Good. Now listen to me, okay? The moment the whistle blows, the very first chance you get, I want you to make Keith wish he had never laced up his boots and come to this field. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. It was like one click short of sweep the leg, Johnny. Like, you know, (laughs) like, keep it professional, but... You know, and as I walked away, he said, Robbie, I said, yes, sir, I want you to do that all night long. Okay, so the game starts, we go out, and first 10 minutes of the game, 
I had my first opportunity. We lost possession of the ball deep in their defensive end. Keith was making a nice run across the field, and everybody knew he's bigger than me. He's probably faster than me. Play it over the top and see just exactly what I could or couldn't do. But their defender didn't get a hold of it, and he hung it up in the air. I had started to drop back already, anticipating it, and I saw the ball hang. And I saw Keith have to stop his forward run and begin to track back for the ball. And I knew that if I calculated it just right, I could create a very controlled yet violent collision in the middle of the air. And I did. Whistle blew, everybody's tempers get flared. I walk away, see my coach. Okay, I did the right thing. Whew, all right. The rest of the game, every single time, he came anywhere near me or in the air. One of us was trying to put some part of our body on him to control him. 72 minutes into the game. I'll never forget it because we were facing the scoreboard. I can see the clock right now. Never forget it. Same situation happened. We lost the ball deep into their defensive end. Everybody's tired. Legs are heavy. All the emotion and energy has been going, right? We start to move. I start to drop back. They think they've got us on a counter. They try again, play it long, take their chance on him beating me on a foot race. They hung it up. Same thing happened in the first 10 minutes. That ball hung up in the air. So here we are again, 72 minutes into the game. I start to make a forward press for that ball in the air. We get ready to go up. Keith does one of these. He drops down. I go straight up over him, put that ball back in the offensive end, and I knew in that moment I won. I won. And there was a lesson that I learned that night that would go with me for the majority of my playing years after that, and it was simply this. And I know it on the other end too. When you get hit hard enough, often enough, you begin to think twice before you put yourself back in the same position again. It happens in all sports. You watch football and you watch that wide receiver cut across the middle, arm stretched, body open for that pass, that inside linebacker sitting there waiting for him. Hits him one time, what happens the next time? Doop. That receiver's arms are like little T-Rexes going across. Like, I don't want to do that again. You get a batter crowding the plate. And you get a pitcher willing to lay that thing right up under his chin enough times. What's he do? Backs up. You get hit hard enough, often enough, and you begin to think twice before you put yourself back into that same position. Timidity can begin to set in. And in sports, timidity can smother effectiveness. But that's not just exclusive to the sports world. Timidity is something that can smother spiritual effectiveness as well. As a pastor, I've grown accustomed to expecting very cold and on good days, mildly antagonistic responses from people when they ask me that fateful question, what do you do for a living? When I respond to them that I get the privilege of being a pastor of a church, on good days they give me a pitiful smile. Maybe they look for very quick ways to end the conversation and get out of it. On the bad days, I hear about all the things they hate. 
that I am the embodiment of. In these days, openly identifying yourself as a Christian is openly inviting pushback and general hostility from our world. Today's culture makers that are shaping what our country is supposed to think is okay, they they are openly hostile to biblical Christianity. You find yourself somewhere at work, at lunch, around the water cooler, at a barbecue in your neighborhood. I've had it happen on our sidewalk in front of our house in our neighborhood. You openly speak of identifying with the Bible's view of marriage, the right to life, sexuality, any issue. And you get hit hard. And if you get hit hard enough, often enough, you begin to short-arm those conversations the next time you get yourself into them. You get hit often enough with the hostility of the world in which we live and timidity can set in. And again, if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, anticipating this reaction from people whenever we openly identify with God's word If we're honest, it's left us entering our daily lives almost apologetic for the things in which we believe. And again, if we're honest, more often than not, when we anticipate getting hit hard, and we've been hit hard enough, often enough, when we find ourselves in those situations, again, we just get silent. The fear of the consequences for being honest It's just too great. I mean, we might fear being squeezed out of certain social relationships and social situations. We might literally fear being looked over for a promotion in our job. And I know some people in this congregation who have to deal with the reality that identifying themselves with God's word and the holiness that God calls of his people can leave them in a situation where they are uncertain about their future in their current job. I get it. Fearing the hit. Because we get hit hard enough, often enough, we can step back. Back from what the Bible says. And we can even be tempted to step back from those who are willing to actually say it. And here's the thing pastors aren't immune from this either. Pastors can fear being seen and responded to poorly because of what they teach and believe. And timidity can set in. And the cultural pressure that's always pushing and always getting heavier and always getting harder can end up silencing the pastor from proclaiming God's word. When that happens, when timidity sets in, It doesn't take long for the church. Those who are literally the called out ones. Those who have literally been set apart by God. It doesn't take long for us to begin looking just like the culture that is so antagonistic towards us. Maybe we want people's respect so badly. Even as a pastor. That we're tempted to take the easier path path of compromise. 
Paul's going to warn Timothy about this later on in the letter when he says, the time is coming when people are not going to endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. British pastor Reuben Hunter said that you and I live in a hostile culture that is threatening to shape fearful Christians and worldly churches. I think it's an accurate assessment, but it's not a new threat to God's people. As we open up God's word and we come to this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, you need to remember that Timothy is in Ephesus, the third largest city in the Roman Empire in that day and a wildly progressive city in the Roman world. When Paul is writing this letter to Timothy while he is in Ephesus, remember Paul is in Rome, chained up to a wall in prison, and the busiest part of Nero's horrific persecution of the church, literally rounding up professing Christians in Rome, tying them up to stakes, covering them in a substance similar to tar, lighting them on fire as the candles outside of his living quarters and parties. The church is not unfamiliar with the situation. Nero is speeding up this ruthlessness that is threatening to destroy the work that's been done. All the while, Christians, including even Timothy, are increasingly tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of men like Paul who are in prison for being his disciples. And so as we open up this letter, we're, we're opening up a, a letter that Paul is writing to prepare Timothy and to prepare the church for living life to the glory of God in an atmosphere like this after he and the rest of the apostles are gone. This is going to signal the end of that apostolic era. Paul and the rest of the apostles aren't going to be around any longer. And so Paul is preparing Timothy and what is now 20 centuries of the church for what faithful Christian life and ministry looks like in the midst of fearful times. And, and the opening charge and the opening remark, and honestly, I think one of the overarching points that Paul is trying to make to Timothy, and by God's grace now 20 centuries later to us as we read it, is that timidity is not part of our gospel-born DNA. It's just not. Yes, Timothy was facing the pressure all around him. Paul was in prison for his faith. That's an open condemnation of all that he has believed because you don't put people in prison for things that aren't condemned. The pressure is mounting Faithful men and women in the church were swerving from the faith, being caught up in philosophies and ideologies that are antagonistic to the gospel. Their faith, Paul says later in the letter, is literally being shipwrecked. Meanwhile, the pluralistic culture of the empire is just getting stronger and gaining steam. And Paul, well aware of the temptation to timidity and fear, well aware of Timothy's capacity to give in to it, he writes this letter to remind him that timidity is not part of his gospel DNA. 
And so this morning, we're just going to consider that. And we're going to, in really the first of what two weeks are going to look like. I'm going to stop short of finishing all those verses today because I think next week we're, we're going to hit the same thing from a different angle because it's so important to Paul. And so as we pick up where he left off in, in verse 6, Paul's writing, he says, Timothy, for, for this reason, what reason, Timothy? Well, the sincerity of your faith, verse 5. For this reason, the confidence that I have that your sincere faith in Christ, it it is genuine. You are the real deal. God has answered the faithful prayers of your mama and your grandmama. And what you believe and what you proclaim and what you profess, that's real, Timothy. Don't doubt it. God has changed you. For this reason, because your faith is sincere, I'm reminding you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When the pressure rises, Timothy, and you're tempted to shrink back, when it feels like timidity is the more comfortable path, remember, Timothy, God has given you everything you need to do the very thing he's called you to do. As we mentioned last week and we pick up this week, God has gifted you for this. And the first thing we've got to see is, and we have to remember, is that Paul is speaking to a very real man here. He's writing this to Timothy. Therefore, we have to be mindful that there's a direct application to Timothy. Paul is mentioning something here that he mentioned as well in his first letter to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. The time in Timothy's life when the elders of the church recognized the gift that God had given Timothy and the calling that he had given Timothy to be a, an elder, a shepherd, a pastor in the church. And they affirmed that gift as they laid their hands on him affirming, confirming to Timothy's heart and affirming what God was doing in his life. This calling that God has given Timothy, it's come from God and was recognized and affirmed by others. And he's gifted you to do the very thing he's called you to do. And and we don't get the details of the gifting here. Sometimes this is one of those passages where I, I, I wish we just got a little more detail. And we don't get a lot of detail here, but as you read the letter that Paul writes and you read the encouragements that Paul gives and you think about them directly to the person that he wrote the letter to originally, you can see and you can begin to understand that he's affirming that God has given Timothy all the gifts that he needs to be the pastor of the church that God's called him to lead, to teach, to understand and communicate God's word with clarity. It's why he's going to be so clear to Timothy to not shrink back from doing it. Don't give in to the timidity. Don't shrink back. Guard that truth. Guard that gospel. Lash yourself to it and lash everyone else to it. Don't give way. God's gifted you to do this very thing, to serve as a pastor in the church. So work hard, Timothy. He's going to say later, work hard in your studying. Work hard in your preaching. Work hard in your evangelizing. Work hard in your training and equipping others. But as we read it, we... We also have to read it in the context here of the letter that Paul has already written to this church. So in an earlier stint in prison, 
Paul wrote a number of letters to churches that he had served, and one of those churches was a church in Ephesus where Timothy is now pastoring. And in that earlier letter to that church, Paul clarified for this church what a gift someone like Timothy really is and what the right expectations of his calling are so that you understand how his gifts are to be used. In fact, this is what Paul said to that church. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said, God personally gave apostles and prophets, evangelists and shepherds, pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Timothy, remember, God has called you and he's gifted you to do the very thing he set you apart for. You and the other pastors of the church are charged to lead the church and the equipping and the training of the church for gospel living and gospel ministry in the midst of times just like this. Remember, Timothy, God called you to this. He gave you to his church. No one ever said it was going to be easy, but in his wisdom and in his goodness, he set you apart for this. He intended for you and the other pastors of the church to be the gifts of his grace that he has planned and for that church to be the same gifts of grace to you in your life. So be clear, Timothy. Remember, God called you to this. And his expectation is that you train and equip his people for gospel living and gospel ministry. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Because God has equipped each of his saints with gifts necessary for the building up of his body into maturity. See, this is where we begin to read it with a larger lens. There's a direct application to Timothy. Yes, God has called you and he's gifted you. But the same principle applies to all of us. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been gifted by God for the building up of his body, the building up of the church. As one writer said, because to every one of his children, God gives not only grace, mercy, and peace and sincere faith, God also gives particular gifts for the good of his people. This gift of God that Paul is talking about here in this letter, the the root word for that gift is charisma. That word comes from the word for grace, charis. It's a gift of grace, a gift you didn't earn, a gift you couldn't buy, a gift that God intended for you to have for the good of his people. In fact, Paul will write about this in letters to other churches. And the letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, Paul says, we, puts himself in the middle of it, we 
have different gifts according to the grace that God has given us. We have them, right? Every Christian has them. And the range of gifts is extraordinary. And no one Christian has all of them. Paul will tell that church, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each individually as He wills. God in His goodness and wisdom gifts His people as He chooses for the building up of His body. And each of His children has a gift. And Paul tells the church in Rome in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if it's service in our serving, if it's teaching in the teaching, to the one who exhorts, it's in his exhortation, to the one who contributes, it's in his generosity, to the one who leads, it's with his zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Yes, we we all encourage each other in the gospel. We all have a measure of teaching in the lives of each other. We all are called to give. We're all called to evangelize. We're all called to show mercy. Yes, but God gives his children a particular gift, a capacity for these things as he sees necessary in his wisdom for the good of his church. You see, we don't just receive forgiveness when we turn to God in repentance and faith. We receive the giftedness that he intends for us to put to use for his glory and the good of his body. For the goal of maturity. For the building up of the body. So that we no longer are children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Jeff Thomas wrote that Every one of us who has a sincere faith has to reckon with this reality that you have a place in the church of Jesus Christ, a function and a role, some responsibility in the assembly with which you gather. You can do what others can't do just the way that you're able to do it. You can reach to serve parts of the body that others can't reach to serve. None of you are redundant. None are superfluous. None are useless. Friends, God intends to use each and every single one of you. Now, many of you maybe are sitting here thinking, you know, I don't know what gift I have. Well, let me just give you two, maybe three. I don't know. We'll see. What's my time? We'll see. Points of encouragement here. There isn't a test out there you can fill out that's going to tell you this thing. All right? There's all kinds of tests out there that people market to determine your spiritual gift. Don't take one of those. If you do, have fun with it, but don't, don't, don't take one of those. You know what you need to do first if you're curious how God has gifted you? Ask someone who knows you. What have they observed in your life? What have they seen in you? Secondly, again, I I love how the Brits say these things. British pastor, he, he said it this way. The Bible never tells you to worry about figuring out what gift you have. It just tells you to start doing something. Where you feel drawn to serve And where you see effectiveness happen is probably a reflection in some way of how God has gifted you. 
Point being, each of us has something the rest of us need. Even now, in the midst of the current situation and circumstance that we find ourselves in as a church. That being said, Paul, I imagine if he was there with Timothy, would look him square in the eyes, create very uncomfortable eye contact, and he would tell Timothy to fan that gift into flame. That's the first command of the letter. I don't know if you've caught it yet. This is the first thing Paul has told Timothy to do. Fan that thing into flame. And you can see the image, right? If you've had an outdoor fire pit or you've ever been camping and you've had a fire and you've cooked dinner on it and you've all gathered, you've warmed yourself by it, there comes a point in the night when that thing begins to die down and you have to make a decision. Do you keep it going or not? And every outdoorsman has their own trick of the trade for how they do it, but someone has to get down near that fire and begin to blow on it. Begin to blow on those coals. Begin to rearrange the logs. Maybe put more wood on it, but they have to do something to get the oxygen in there to fan that thing back into flame. Listen, Timothy. Under the weight of intimidation, under the constant challenges being put to you, all the alternative philosophies being promoted and drawing people away. Church, enough collisions. You get hit hard enough, often enough. Timidity can begin to set in and the fire can begin to burn low. And the temptation to neglect the gifts of God can become great. Timothy, church, Fan that gift into flame. Don't neglect it. Don't ignore it. You have to nurture it. You have to strengthen it. You have to nourish it. You have to cherish it. You have to provide for it. You have to develop it. You have to build it up in every possible way to fan that flame into more warmth and greater light. And the verb here that Paul uses is one of a continuous, ongoing action, not a blow on that thing once, get it hot and walk away. No, it's part of life. You have to be about the business of fanning this thing into flame. It's habitual. It's part of life. And it's your responsibility. You have agency for this. And you fan it into flame by exercising it, by using it, by growing in it. But you also fan it into flame by fanning the flames of your delight in Jesus through a daily intentional work of cultivating your soul in repentance and faith. I'm talking about the temperature of your devotion to the Lord. One writer said, it may be that our gifts seem elusive to us and sometimes inconsequential because we've allowed a dying out of our own delight and zeal for Jesus. You see, being given a gift of grace by God for the building up of his body doesn't mean that we can then take our souls for granted. I think this is one of the great tragedies we're observing in the modern church. And I think we're observing it at an alarming rate because of the technology available to us, but I don't think it's really all that 
uncommon. I just think we're seeing and hearing more about it, but there are men and women in the church who God has gifted, and the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of those gifts are, are extraordinary, and they've traded on those gifts and that giftedness while nurturing secret sins that have long been unrepented of. And while their giftedness continues to work, their integrity has been eroded. But the strength of the gift kept them in ministry year after year. And the strength of the gift even obscured the presence of that sin they had nurtured from their own eyes. A chief way we fan this, these gifts that God has given us into flame is by paying careful attention first to the temperature of our devotion to the Lord. Regardless of the fruitfulness of our gifts, we, we can't afford to neglect fanning the flames of our souls. To watch our lives. To watch our doctrine. To be daily in God's word that we would see Jesus and hear the Lord's voice. To be daily in prayer and communion with the Lord. Learning to discern his wisdom encouraging one another and speaking to one another as often as we have on a day-in and day-out basis of what God is doing, what God is showing us, how we are repenting, the exercise of our faith as we're being reminded of his promises and faithfulness to us. God has gifted you in this time, in these circumstances, for the building up of his body into maturity. And everyone that he has made a part of his body by his grace through faith in his son has been gifted and is necessary. So Timothy, so church, fan that thing into flame. Put your gifts to use. Don't neglect your soul in the process. But we've got to keep going because he says something in verse 7 that very much grounds the bigger picture here. Fan this gift into flame, Timothy. Four, verse seven, four. Circle it, underline it. We're gonna do a lot of that in this letter. Four, because. Here's the ground. Here, here we go. Here, here's why. I'm telling you this. Four, God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Fan the flames of your soul and gifts of grace into flame, Timothy. Because timidity, fear, shrinking back, it's not a part of your gospel-born DNA. I am one who falls into the camp here that I think the actual translation of verse 7 should have a capital S right there. When Paul says for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-control. A lowercase s would begin to point in the direction of a particular disposition of soul and heart. A capital S would refer to God the Holy Spirit. We'll see as we get a little further down in chapter 1 in the coming weeks that I think and I believe by the way he wrote it here that Paul is referring to God the Holy Spirit. Different translations actually do this differently. You'll find some translations with a capital S, some with a lowercase s. The ESV has a lowercase s here. I'm of the mind that it should be a capital S here. Because God's Spirit, who took up residence in you, 
when he did a work in your heart to open up your eyes to see the glory and beauty of God the Father and the work in the face of his son, when he brought you to a place of faithful, joyful delight and surrender to Jesus as king, he took out of you that heart of stone that was calloused and rejected the wisdom and the light of God's word and he gave you a heart of flesh and his spirit took up residence in you and you began to delight in the things of God. You began to increasingly delight in the words of God. You began to want the things that God wanted. And God the Holy Spirit continued to work in you day in and day out, increasingly conforming you to the image and likeness of his son. And God the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that's taken up residence in you, is not one who's marked by fear or timidity, but by power, love, and self-control. When God the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart, he began to cultivate new instincts in you. You see it most clearly in Paul. He's such a great display of this. Remember when Paul got tired of waiting for everyone to join him, and he took off to Athens, and he left a note and said, meet me in Athens. And he gets there and he's all by himself. And he gets there and he walks out and he sees a land of Athens covered in countless idols. People gathering crowds in every open space, spewing off every revered philosophy known to man. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Paul was provoked in soul when he was faced with all this idolatry and all this empty philosophy. And the root for that word provoked, it's, it's the word paroxysm. Probably said it wrong, but those of you that are in the medical field here, you know what that word actually is. We find that root in medical terminology for the quick onrush of symptoms. The instincts of God the Holy Spirit in Paul gave him a different response, a courage, a power in the face of such idolatry and alternative philosophy. Friends, when you and I are are confronted in in a similar way like Paul in in a land of competing ideas that work hard to draw men and women and children away from a sincere and delightful faith in Christ. The exaltation of such error ought to stir something in us. There are instincts that are born in our gospel DNA out of the presence of God the Holy Spirit such that ongoing timidity and silence in the face of such errors contrary to who we've been born again to be. It's not part of our gospel DNA Timothy in Ephesus was surrounded by opposition to Jesus on all sides. Opposition to Paul. Opposition to his ministry. People were leaving. People were being killed. And the temptation to give in to all the confrontational pressure was so high. Paul said, Timothy, remember, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity. 
In fact, Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all of Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The timidity that seems so easy, the timidity that feels like that warm, comfy blanket on a cold winter night, when the pressure gets so high, the consequences feel so real. That timidity is not part of your gospel-born DNA, church. But be careful. It's not raw power to run over people. It's power sheathed in love and self-control. Just like Peter would remind the church that you and I will have every opportunity to give the reason for the hope that's within us that animates the way we live. He says we do it with gentleness and respect. God will give you everything you need for your gifts to be used in such a way that in the end his body is encouraged and Jesus is exalted, his church is increasingly matured, and in the end his disciples are multiplied. I love the way that Calvin reflected on it for his church in a sermon he preached on this text. He said that Paul speaks of this power as accompanied by love and self-discipline in order to distinguish the power of the Spirit from the intemperate zeal of fanatics who rush in with reckless haste and boast the power of the Spirit of God, the powerful energy of the Spirit. It's one that's always tempered by love and sobriety. And it always carries an assured concern for the right edification or encouragement of the heart. The pressure can get high, Timothy. I know it's crashing in on all sides. I know the temptation. It's going to be easier if you figure out what not to say and how to say certain things in a certain way that maybe people could hear the way they wanted. I know, Timothy, you're one prone to finding the path of least resistance. Timothy, God has called you to this. Church, God has given you everything you need to love and to serve his body in a way that only you can, even in times like this, so that in the end, his church continues to mature and his church continues to multiply. Don't need to be afraid. He's given you his very spirit for the very thing that he has put us in this place to do. I guess I'm supposed to stop. I'm going to pause it. I'm a, we're having all kinds of technical stuff, aren't we, this morning? So, 
I guess I have to end it this way. As the Brits would say, Timothy, church, you just need to crack on with what God's called you to do. He's going to enable it. He's prepared you. He's equipped you. He answered your mom and your grandma's prayers to save you. He's called you to this. He's gifted you to this. He's brought Paul into your life. And the same spirit that is at work in Paul is the same spirit at work in you. And he's put you in this place, in this time, for such a time with all of its challenges and all of its oppositions. He's got you here for a reason. He's not going to leave you. Don't be afraid. And the same is true for every church since then. Friends, God has sovereignly led you to where you are. His spirit, the same spirit of power, love, and self-control is at work and alive within you. You don't need to fear. However the cultural storms are raging, you don't need to be afraid. But you do need to depend on him to continue to plead with him to continue to work in you. To plead with him to continue to advance the work of his gospel. To plead with him to further equip his people. Plead with him to continue to grant us faith-filled courage because we know he has called us here in this time. And he wants us to press on with hope. Don't let fear get in the way, friends. God has not simply given you the gift of salvation as great as that is. He's gifted you and empowered you with all you need to use for his glory and the good of his church. And he will use you. I promise you he will. We need you. So fan into flame the coals of your delight in Jesus. Fan into flame the gifts that he's given you. Because God has called you and he's given you everything you need to be who he's called you to be. Let me pray for us this morning before my phone goes off again. And together we'll continue to respond to God's word. Lord, we thank you that we're not in this time and in this day alone, that none of the pressures that we face, none of the circumstances that we're in, none of the things that feel so burdensome and heavy to us are a surprise to you, Lord, but you have called us to cast those burdens upon you, to allow you to carry that which only you can carry, and for us to remember, just as Paul reminded Timothy, for us to remember Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit that saved us, the work of your Holy Spirit that's taken up residence in us, the work of your Holy Spirit to gift us in particular ways, to place us in this church, in this city, in this time for your glory and your good, and to give us all that we need to see your church grow up into maturity to see your son exalted. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the work in us that only you can do and you would shine the light back into our hearts of your presence and your work for your glory. And we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.